Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And if you've flipped your TV on over the past, I don't know, like decade, you may very well have caught a glimpse of programs like this. This is a special edition of TLC's What Not to Wear. Tonight, it's the biggest loser couples edition. What is it going to take for you to make that change? Coming up, the new cam. In case you haven't noticed, makeovers are everywhere, with all these people trying to transform themselves on national television. Now, dear Metro Connection listeners, we love you just the way you are. So on today's show, we're not going to try and change your hair or your clothes or your home decor, but we are going to present an entire hour on the topic of makeovers, but not necessarily the kinds you see on reality TV. We'll meet a woman who worked as the FBI's first female criminal profiler and hear how she's changing her life in retirement. We'll talk with the man who designed that nutrition facts label on your cereal box and find out how he feels about that label's impending redesign. And we'll visit what may be one of the last dairy barns inside the Beltway and hear from residents who are trying to give it a new lease on life. First, though, we'll travel to Deal Island on Maryland's eastern shore, where oyster season is in full swing. Since the end of the 1800s, watermen on the Chesapeake Bay have harvested oysters with these quick, nimble boats known as skipjacks. And the Chesapeake's commercial skipjack fleet used to number in the hundreds. Nowadays, though, it's down to six. Or five, rather. Should I come under there, too? Yeah, sure. Okay. Since one of these boats... Under the boat here? A sleek, white 50-footer named Catherine... Trying not to hit my head. ...has been out of commission since 2011. So here's what's going on. Yeah, what's going on? Here's what's going on. Everything uh, below the waterline is being replaced, including the standard uh, standing frames. Like, all these frames will be replaced, and you can see the new ones that we're adding in right now. Eastern Shore native Stony Whitelock captains the skipjack, Catherine. This is part of my heritage, and this is where I came from, and this is what my family did. Uh, let's see, my great-great-grandfather was a skipjack captain. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, and now my son's doing it. On Labor Day weekend 2011, Catherine was damaged in the annual skipjack race when her port, or her left side, struck a buoy. We had a stiff breeze that day, and this boat likes a stiff breeze. But uh, we hit up in the forward port side, and uh, we were taking on water, and that's a whole nother story. A whole nother story that involved Catherine's two dozen passengers using five-gallon buckets to bail out the water before she was towed back to land and moved here, inside this massive blue and white tent near the bay. I have to say, it's pretty amazing to be... I've never stood inside the bottom of a boat. Like, this, this would normally be underwater, where yeah, we're standing right this now. This is the underwater part. Yeah. And that underwater part is pretty busted up, I gotta say. Though it's come a long way since that fateful Labor Day weekend. Thanks in no small part to a guy I visited in the nearby town of St. Michael's. 
I am Michael Vlahovich, founding director of the nonprofit organization Coastal Heritage Alliance. The Coastal Heritage Alliance is all about promoting the heritage of commercial fishermen. So Vlahovich has been instrumental in raising money to restore the Skipjack Catherine. And as a master shipwright, he's also been doing actual restoration work himself through a grant that's funding 240 hours of labor. And that means staff and tools and materials three days a month. And that's the time when we solicit volunteerism, and that's when we get interns down from the local college. People are welcome at any time, but those are really designated days. I wasn't in town on one of those designated days, but Michael Volahovich's son, Anthony, has helped out on several of them. And he says when he first saw the inside frame of the skipjack... Hardly even call it wood. It's more like mulch. Because here's the thing. Catherine was built in 1901, okay? And as Michael Volahovich points out, her fellow remaining skipjacks are similarly long in the tooth. I mean, skipjacks aren't supposed to last hundreds of years, right? Well, no, no. They were, they were never expected to last this long and... Catherine, like all the other skipjacks, have received repair work in the past. So actually, even before the Labor Day incident, Catherine wasn't exactly in tip-top shape. Like Vlahovich says, she'd had some work done here and there. At one point, the Chesapeake Bay skipjack fleet was actually in line to receive $50,000 apiece from the state of Maryland. But when those funds ran out earlier than expected, Vlahovich, who'd spent his life building and fishing on boats, stood up and said, you know what? If the state can't do it. I'll do it. And that's when and why I founded Coastal Heritage Alliance. Another source of funds for the Skipjack Catherine is a little less official and a little less grown up, I guess you could say. But the way Captain Stoney Whitelock sees it, it's no less important. Which one did your granddaughter do? This one here. We're in Captain Stoney's living room, where you'll find about a dozen children's drawings framed and hung on the wall. They are so sweet. They're so colorful, and most of them say, yeah, get well. They all say, get well, Catherine. Get well, Catherine. Yeah. Captain Stoney's granddaughter's then second grade class drew these get well pictures of Catherine just after Labor Day 2011. Some of them are quite the artists. Right. <laughs> and lots of imagination. And some of them she's brown, and some yep. of them she's bright green. Yeah. Over there she's red. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All these images were eventually made into T-shirts, which are now for sale. Half of the proceeds go to the PTA at a local Deal Island school, and uh, we take the other half to work on the Catherine. Captain Stoney estimates they have about $200,000 to go. That's a lot of T-shirts, but he's confident they'll get there. And that Catherine will be ship-shaped by next year, ideally in time for the next skipjack race. When we get back, uh, we'll plan on winning the race. In the meantime, though, he says he's touched to see so many people lend a buck or a hand or a crayon-drawn get-well card in support of Catherine. Though he also says... He isn't surprised. Just everybody that got on the boat to take a sail, they just left everything ashore. I mean, you could tell they were brighter when they left than than they were when they came aboard. And it's it's true. This this boat's got its own soul. And soon enough, he says, she'll have a brand new, lovingly repaired body to match that more than 100-year-old soul. (laughs) 
to see photographs of Catherine before and after Labor Day 2011. And to see some of those Get Well Catherine t-shirts, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Okay, so makeovers can be physical, right, like the restoration of the skipjack Catherine, but they can also be professional, like, say, if you're making over your career. In the late 1970s, Roseanne Russo was working as a school psychologist, but she was itching to do something a little more exciting with her life. Russo's career makeover landed her at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And now, after nearly three decades with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Russo is on makeover number two. Jacob Fenston brings us her story. Previously on Profiler, Dr. Samantha Waters, she can see through the eyes of a criminal. Television and movies have made famous the FBI's behavioral science unit, so-called criminal profilers, who use psychology to help track down bad guys. Many of these fictional crime solvers are women, as in NBC's drama Profiler or the movie Silence of the Lambs. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you? Credentials. In real life, Roseanne Russo was one of the FBI's first two female profilers. Well, I used to watch the FBI story with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Every, I think it was aired every Sunday. Excuse me, FBI. I'll have to ask you people to leave. But never dreamed as a female Please. that I would be an FBI special agent or that it was even a possibility for me. That's because when she was growing up, there were no female FBI agents. Bureau Director J. Edgar Hoover refused to admit women for whom he said the job would be too dangerous. The very first special female special agents that came into the FBI were shortly after Hoover's death in uh, 70. Just one week after Hoover was buried, the FBI announced it would sign on women as special agents. The Bureau also let up on the dress code. Shirt colors other than white would be allowed, and sideburns could be grown out to the ear. A few years later, when Russo started at the FBI in 1979, she says there were still only 200 female agents out of 10,000 total. These days, one in five FBI agents is female. I asked Russo how women's roles at the Bureau changed during her three decades there. I think back in those earlier years, for some of the men, it was a capability question. Would a woman be able to do this job? And I think, you know, once they all knew we had to qualify with our firearm, that that certainly wasn't an issue for for women. We certainly were able to, to shoot a weapon. I think it was just more of... Some of the the male, our male colleagues, it was an adjustment in the sense that they hadn't had a a woman as a partner. And I think that was an issue for some, but certainly not most. We're still having these discussions in society with the the role of women in in combat in the Mm -hmm. military, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's exactly what I was thinking as we were, yeah, it's amazing how things just evolve. But the issue is similar. Did you feel like your role uh, was unique at all as a woman in the FBI that you ever felt like you you played a a unique role? I would have to go back to, again, being uh, an FBI agent in those earlier years. 
<clears throat> my first office was in Milwaukee, and I remember being received very well in the Milwaukee office by my male colleagues, and I got to do a whole variety of things because they found that they felt they could blend in better with me at their side. Uh, we could look like we're a couple eating at a restaurant and not look suspicious in any way like, like we are the FBI. So I think that in the earlier years, I was afforded a lot more opportunities because I was female. In 2008, Roseanne Russo retired from the FBI. But you know how in the movies they always have to call up the retired agent to help out? She left the world of criminal investigation. I quit. Now, the case that would pull her back in. I was asked if I would come back and basically manage a program. But now she's retired for good, and this is makeover number two. This happens to so many of my colleagues. As you get near to retirement, your life is just so busy. You don't have a lot of time to think about yourself and any transition. I just never had the time because there was just always so much demand and deadlines. And it wasn't really until after I retired that I started to go through that transition thought process of, okay, now I've got this time, but I don't want to waste this time. So what can I do that would still be valuable and would still be contributing to society. She's contributing by volunteering every week, helping feed the homeless, giving tours at the Kennedy Center, and helping out right here at WAMU, where I sat down to talk with her in our newsroom. But does she miss the FBI? I think what I'd have to say is I, I miss that camaraderie and just that commitment and that work atmosphere. But do I miss the long hours? I do not. <laughs> I'm Jacob Fenston. Are you undergoing a career makeover? If so, tell us how it's going. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. for a break, but when we get back, making over a Virginia relic. Well, the barn turned 75 years old last year, and I think that in our county, with such rapid development, it's really important to save a slice of history where you can. And preparing for a major makeover in a D.C. industrial neighborhood. You're going to see major construction and changes over the next two years, three years, five to seven years. That's when you'll see everyone kind of comfortably saying this is completely different than I remember it. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection. You're on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca 
Shashir. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, our theme is makeovers. And in this next segment, we're going to be talking about neighborhood transformations. In just a bit, we'll head to one of the more industrial sections of D.C. to look at the changes coming there. But first, Lauren Landau takes us to Northern Virginia for a story about a more than 75-year-old building and what its fate may be. Standing at the top of the Tower Club in Tyson's Corner, you've got a bird's-eye view of the Beltway, McLean, and Northwest Washington. Below us is the largest urban center between New York and Atlanta. And 50 years ago, the only thing in sight would have been a farmhouse to the northwest and the Pimmet Barn to the northeast. Paul Kohlenberger is president of the McLean Historical Society, and he's currently involved in efforts to save the Pimmet Barn, which stands on a hill about a mile from the Tower Club. From the balcony, you can spot the white barn peeking out from behind some trees. There's absolutely nothing that hints at the agricultural past. We have a metro, we have 12 lanes of the Beltway, we have innumerable skyscrapers, the National Counterterrorism Center, and a 1937 vintage cinderblock dairy barn. Through extensive research, Kohlenberger learns that the Pimmet Barn is the oldest structure in the Pimmet Hills neighborhood and the last agricultural building in the greater Tysons area. It's also the last Virginia dairy barn inside the Beltway and the only surviving example of a concrete dairy barn in the urbanized portion of Fairfax County. As of the time of this barn's operation, agricultural pursuits were by far the largest employer and economic activity. Dairying was two-thirds of this for the county, so this was incredibly important in the area's livelihood. Leslie Stone lives next door to the Pimmet Barn and says she would like to one day teach her two-year-old son that milk comes from cows, not plastic jugs. I want my son to know about the history of the region, which is predominantly dairy farming. And I think the Tyson's area of shopping malls and high-rise office buildings doesn't really reflect that anymore. And so this one little slice of history is, I think, important to keep. In May, Leslie started a petition to save the last vestige of her community's agricultural past. At the time, there was a proposal that threatened to demolish the barn and use the space for a group home for seniors and disabled adults. Right now it belongs to the Fairfax County Park Authority, and they proposed giving it to another branch of the county government that would tear it down. So we wanted to make it clear to the Fairfax County Park Authority and to the Board of Supervisors that there's widespread community support for saving the barn. Thus far, the petition has gotten nearly 500 signatures, and a survey circulated around the neighborhood shows that only 1 to 2 percent of respondents favor tearing down the barn over saving it. In general, the community is interested in saving the barn because we have less park space than other R4-zoned areas, so people like the green space. People think it's a historically important structure built in 1937 and the last dairy barn of its kind in Fairfax County. Paul Kohlenberger recently submitted an application to the Fairfax Historical Commission to get the Pimmet Barn listed as a historical site, which she says won't protect the barn, but it could convince the park authority that the site is worth saving. The historic nomination, we hope, will convince the park authority that they have a cultural resource that is worth maintaining and protecting, while also convincing them that the half-acre site is large enough to provide passive recreational activities to the local residents while preserving natural open green space for future generations. A few months ago, Drainsville Supervisor John Faust supported the plan to convert the barn into a group home, but that was before the Friends of Pimmet Barn assembled and began making a case for saving the building. He now says that as long as he's supervisor, the barn won't be torn down. Now that they've focused us, I definitely think it should be saved. We're working in a, or living in a very 
rapidly urbanizing area, Tyson's Corner is immediately next door to Pimmett Hills. And the opportunity to preserve something that's part of our history is something I'd like to pursue and work with them to see if we can do it. But it won't be easy. We don't know what renovations are needed, so we don't know what just getting it to the point where it can stay as is will cost. But then secondly, we don't really know what uses could be made of it. Even though the proposal for a group home has been tabled, the Pimmet Barn still isn't safe. The cost of renovating is a real concern, and proponents for saving the structure need to rustle up some real cash to back their efforts. They say in the short term, they'd like to see benches, a historical marker, and community garden plots at the site. They'll be fundraising to make that all happen, and say they have even bigger plans for the future. I'm Lauren Landau. turn now from a makeover involving our rural past to a makeover that's all about our urban future. This one has to do with the redevelopment of one of D.C.'s industrial zones just off New York Avenue in the center of Ward 5. A newly formed mayoral task force is looking to make the neighborhood greener and more modern while still keeping it business friendly. And smack dab in the middle of all the old buildings, some hopping party venues are already putting former warehouses to use. Among them, Echo Stage the city's largest dedicated concert space. Echo Stage is currently closed as it undergoes its own renovation. But earlier this week, outside the club, Jonathan Wilson caught up with its general manager, Matt Cronin, to talk about the changes in store for the venue and for the neighborhood. So for people who haven't been to Echo Stage, never went to it and haven't heard of it, what is it like inside there and what are you guys aiming for with this renovation? Kind of like a modern warehouse concept, uh, a hybrid concept, if you will, a crossover between uh, nightclub amenities without losing uh, a true venue and concert goers' uh, experience. Meaning we have the large open floor, but we also have the mezzanines, which are 21 and up, that uh, cater to more of like a high-end experience without getting jostled into where you can get a drink comfortably. In terms of the part of town that you guys are in, you guys are kind of hidden back here. If you aren't looking for a party, you wouldn't know it was here. Do you guys like that, or is that something that you you know see changing in the future for this part of, of D.C.? Um, I think when you're dealing with real estate and locations and when you're scouting potential areas to start a business, you, you have to look down the road a little bit. And this area is under a lot of development. Uh, the corridor is great in terms of access to suburban customers with Virginia and Maryland having, you know, 50 connecting right into 95 North, 495, uh, you know, it's 395. You, you can't beat the location as far as accessibility. And it's really being uh, beautified and, and uh, becoming nicer every week that we see. Is there any cachet having this kind of industry around you? The fact that the the venue is kind of hidden back here, not near any residential area, not near any commercial right now. Or would you guys like it if it you know, if this area is completely transformed like I think some people would like it to be? Um, I, you know, it's a catch-22. In the music industry, people love the warehouse feel. They love kind of like that edgy warehouse district feel. Uh, but then there is a comfortable 
aspect that has to be approached and, and taken care of. So, you know, we're just going to grow with the neighborhood, work with our area and, and the community and, and try to make it as comfortable for the for our neighbors and as comfortable for our concert goers as possible. What have you heard from the city and from, you know, um, I guess developers around here about the possibilities for this neighborhood? What's what's in store for around us? Obviously, there's a lot of construction going on as we speak. Um, there seem to be a lot of empty buildings or at least buildings that are maybe underused or, um, you know, not quite certain what's going to happen with them. What do you see and hear about the future here? Not far from here at all, less than a mile, uh, the Hex Building, which is a Washington, D.C. landmark. Uh, Douglas Development is currently uh, beginning a huge, massive renovation of that area, multiple city blocks, which is going to help us out tremendously. Obviously, with the Noma area, um, right over off of New York with that metro station, uh, all those new massive apartment buildings, all of the Harris Teeters and the Starbucks. I mean, it's the area is growing. Uh, I see it every day and it will be down here. It's just a matter of time. So tell me in terms of the renovation, when did you guys kind of shut up shop to, to renovate and when will it reopen? Um, this renovation was always planned since we initially started the project. The renovation will be done uh, sometime in mid-March. Uh, our first show in March, March 23rd, is, uh, is going to be Omega with Steve's promo, which is Excision, followed the next week by two nights of David Guetta. Uh, so, you know, we'll be open March 23rd, ready to rock and roll. In terms of, you know, we're talking about this neighborhood, how fast do you think things will happen? Based off of what I've seen in other parts of the city, and this is just me throwing it out there, I would say about five to seven years probably before it really is unrecognizable. But you're going to see major construction and changes over the next two years, three years, five to seven years. That's when you'll see everyone kind of comfortably saying this is completely different than I remember it. Same thing happened in Columbia Heights, U Street, H Street. I mean, it's just that's just the way it works. That was Echo Stage General Manager Matt Cronin talking with Jonathan Wilson. The mayor's Ward 5 Industrial Land Transformation Task Force has a year to do its work. It is scheduled to submit a report to the mayor in January of next year. If you want to see pictures of the neighborhood around Echo Stage on Queens Chapel Road, visit our website, metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Spring Valley in northwest D.C. and the Maplewood neighborhood of Bethesda, Maryland. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Kraskin, and I'm 58 years old. This is the Spring Valley neighborhood in upper northwest D.C. We're located between Massachusetts Avenue and Loughborough, right by American University. I've lived here since 1960. One of the uniquenesses of Spring Valley is that it was the first neighborhood to have what are referred to as curvilinear streets. That means the streets are following the natural curves, and the intent was to keep as many of the natural amenities, the creek, the spring, Wyatt Spring Valley, and the tree line. So we have many trees, and in fact, we work to keep that. There are actually underground water springs that run under homes throughout the area, and they come out to light at times in Spring Valley Park, in which a lot of the neighbors like to walk their dogs we go back into the early 19th century, 
It was a farmland owned by a number of families, and in the uh, 1920s, in 1918 actually, uh, the, the military used it for some World War I munition testing. And then in the later 1920s, 28 and the 1930s, the WCN and A.N. Miller companies started developing and purchased the land and began developing homes. My name is Jean Levin, and I've been living in Maplewood for 53 years, before the Beltway, before the Metro, before all the progress we see here now. Maplewood is called Maplewood, I'm pretty sure, because of all the beautiful trees we had here and a great many maples, maple trees that we had in the area. And there are many old trees now, unfortunately, and a lot of them do have to come down because they've gotten quite old and some of them have, have fallen, and, uh, but there's, there's still quite a few here. My particular area where I'm living now was really a forest. Right at the end of the street was a barbed wire, which um, we didn't even know who was at the other end of the street because, because of all the trees here. I walk my dog up in the area. It's a wonderful place to walk, walk the dog. And there's a dog park up the street, too. And the place really is filled with young children and young families and dogs. Little, almost everyone has a dog here. And that's how you get the neighborhood. I've met everybody because of my dog and when they were children were here because of the children. So we get to know them. The, play, the place has many, many young people here now. You heard from Jeff Kraskin in Spring Valley and Jean Levin in Maplewood. Your neighborhood can be part of Door to Door, too. Just send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next. There was a lot of money up there, then. I said, gee. If I can go ahead and get me a barber shop and do the things that they're doing, I would soon be rich. We'll meet a D.C. barber who set out to make money but found his work offered other rewards. Plus, rehabbing the reputation of a man who remade D.C. in the 1800s. My favorite phrase for what he did for Washington was that he put meat on the bones of Pierre Lafont's plan. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are all about makeovers. So far, we've met a criminal profiler who's making over her life after retiring from the FBI. We've visited D.C.'s largest concert venue, which is receiving a tremendous makeover of its own. And in just a bit, we'll meet the local man responsible for the nutrition label on the food we eat and hear about plans to revamp that label. But first, we're going to talk about a fellow, a native Washingtonian actually, who you could kind of say is associated with two makeovers in his case, there's the makeover of a physical place. And then later, there's somewhat of a rehabilitation makeover of his reputation. 
That's Carolyn Crouch, owner of the walking tour company Washington Walks. I met up with her on 14th and E in northwest D.C., right next to a statue of the rather infamous guy she's talking about, Alexander Roby Shepard, who directed the Board of Public Works during Washington's territorial government period from 1871 to 1874. He was instrumental in allowing the city to flourish after the Civil War as a city that finally had sewage under the ground in nice pipes, water flowing to people's homes, paved, graded streets. He created a massive tree canopy in Washington, D.C. How many trees did he, did he plant? 64,000 trees oh. under his time as the head of the public works of Washington, D.C. Didn't they also call him the czar? of the public works? They called him, they might have, but his name that stuck was Boss, Boss Shepard, as in Boss Tweed, frankly, of Tammany Hall in New York City, because there were allegations of mismanagement of funds, misappropriation of funds, cronyism. Nothing was ever legally proven that he did anything illegal. But I think that's what made the name Boss Shepherd attached to his reputation during his time, not only as the head of the Department of Public Works here, but then for one year he was the territorial governor, over about nine months, the territorial governor of the District of Columbia. Why only nine months? Well, two things happened. He was removed from that position, and the territorial government was dissolved by the Congress. The uh, overspending of his budget, which was extravagant overspending, and sort of these rumors that kept chasing him about sort of wheeling and dealing that might not have been above board caused the Congress just to lose confidence in the leadership. And that was the end of home rule in Washington, D.C. for 100 years. It didn't come back until the 1970s. And what became of Boss Shepard? Did he hang his head in shame and walk away with his tail between his legs? He was not that type of person. (laughs) He, sadly, he does all this for the city, makes the city look like worthy of the nation's capital. Sadly for him, there was a depression in 1873, and he had to file bankruptcy, I think, in 1876. So he had to figure out what his second act was going to be. He decides to take a chance on silver mining, moves his family to the Chihuahua state in Mexico, reopens an abandoned silver mine, doesn't make a big success of it. It doesn't kind of recoup his initial, his original fortune that he made here in Washington, because he'd also early on had invested in real estate here at a time when nobody was investing in real estate. So he wasn't able to recoup that spent the last 22 years of his life living in Mexico. That's where he died. But you know what? He's buried in the Rock Creek Cemetery right in his hometown. And now he has this statue here on on 14th and E, but I understand this is not the original home of this statue. Well, this actually is very close to the original home of the statue. It was placed here in 1909. So in 1909, people then are wanting to pay tribute to him. This man who did so much for the look the infrastructure, the built environment of their hometown, their city. And this statue stood here for many decades. 
then it was moved when the Federal Triangle Project occurred, not far from here in this vicinity, but then in the 1970s, it was removed from this area and it had this rather inauspicious home on Shepherd Street Southwest, which is right by the Blue Plains Water Treatment Facility. And that's where his statue stayed for a few decades. And it seems that his reputation as someone who mishandled money, maybe didn't manage things very well, maybe did indulge in cronyism, that dominated a lot of discussions about Alexander Shepard. Then there was a group of Washingtonians who had just about enough of that because they realized that that may be true. But the contributions that he made to Washington could not go unsung and that his statue needed to be back here as a reminder of the important role he had in really creating a Washington, D.C. that was worthy to be called nation's capital. So this organization called the Association of Oldest Inhabitants started a campaign to get this statue back here. And by 2005, it was re-erected on the site. A few years later, funding was acquired to have it restored, cleaned, and shined up nicely. Lighting was added, so at night when you drive by, you can see him. And they put on their website the nicest encapsulation about Boss Shepard. You know, all the story about him is there. But certainly you can read their account of his life in Washington and see that he really gave a lot to our city controversial person, but one who really deserves to be remembered and I think in many people's minds honored and thanked for what he did. Carolyn Crouch is the owner and founder of Washington Walks. For more on Alexander Shepard and to find that AOI website Carolyn mentioned, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So we'll head now from East Street Northwest to N Street Northwest, right near DuPont Circle. That's where you'll find the brand marketing firm Greenfield Belser. My name is Donna Greenfield Belser. My married name is Belser. I'm married to Berkey Belser, who is sitting beside me. We live in Bethesda, Maryland. The husband and wife design team is quite accustomed to reinventing brands from top to bottom. And their most famous brand? Well, you've definitely seen it before. Berkey designed the Nutrition Facts label, which is on just about every food package that you'll ever see. The label dates back more than 20 years to 1992. And now the Food and Drug Administration has announced it's making over the Nutrition Facts label to incorporate modern nutrition science. Emily Berman sat down with Donna and Berkey to discuss his design and what this new label might look like. When you tell people you design something as iconic as the Nutrition Facts label, you get all kinds of reactions. But mainly, Donna Greenfield says, most people want to know if they get royalties. Which, of course, we do not. If we got royalties, we would be the richest people in the world right now. That black and white box is printed on just about every food item sold in the United States. But chances are, according to its designer, Berkey Belser, you've probably never really looked at it. 
if we'd done our job right, it in fact is very unimpressive. That's the thing about design, he says. When it works, it looks like it's always been there. But in this case, it was brand new. In the Depression, there was very little food labeling. But what food labeling there was was really responsive to a diet of scarcity. Imagine there are no superhighways, there are no coolers everywhere, there are no large grocery stores, and food that's basically fresh. The nutrition labeling consisted of a short list of vitamins and minerals, just what you needed to avoid rickets and scurvy. But then, in the 1950s, we built the interstate highway system and began shipping food long distances. Suddenly around 1980, we're looking at a completely different issue. We're looking at a diet of surfeit. The United States was getting obese. And so, in 1990, President George H.W. Bush signed a law that gave the Food and Drug Administration authority to require nutritional labeling on most foods. They had spent years deciding what should be on the label, but in order to make consumers notice it, they would need a designer to jazz it up. We tried pie charts and bar charts, and what we learned about charting mechanisms is that they are actually a second level of literacy. They tried creating a logo of a rising sun. We thought that would be a wonderful expression of health, the rising sun. Well, in fact, people couldn't tell whether the sun was rising or setting. Belser turned then to color, which didn't work either. Does red say, don't use this food? Is that a warning? Does green say this food is good when the food may in fact not be the healthy choice? It took 35 versions until, finally, we had a winner. There's a a title on Nutrition Facts. That was critical. Here, this shouted out, Nutrition Facts, we're a thing. There's a thin border that goes all the way around the label, creating a box. What it did was it kept manufacturers off that turf. The minimum type size is 8-point, which isn't huge, but it's readable. And when you're wrestling with a manufacturer for space on the package, the size of that type is huge consideration for them because that means it's going to simply occupy more real estate. Two thick lines separate the macronutrients, like the fats, sodium, and carbohydrates, from the micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals. The bold type guides the reader through the structure of the label itself. The light type provides the backup to what's under those bold headlines. Belser was happy with it. The public accepted it. The FDA loved it. But its biggest fan was, perhaps, Italian designer Massimo Vignelli. The first time I saw the Nutrition Facts label, it earned my unlimited enthusiasm. Vignelli wrote an op-ed for AIGA's magazine. That's the magazine of the Professional Association of Designers. The label is a statement of social responsibility and a masterpiece of graphic design. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. Exciting, sure. But how can the Nutrition Facts label actually be a success in a country with a skyrocketing obesity rate? I often ask myself whether the label actually works. The label is now in its 20th year, and the FDA confirms it is, in fact, getting a makeover. Something that's frequently brought up is the idea of sugars. And why isn't there a percent daily value for sugars on the right-hand part of the food label? And Because, in fact, you can't identify one. Belser says he has been involved with the redesign and says we probably won't see sugar treated any differently. We will likely see more information about allergens and artificial ingredients, he says. Yes, the goal is to change behavior. The real question is, can behavior be changed? Belser says he's a bit fearful his original award-winning design will be ruined. But for the greater good and improved public health, he's willing to let it rest in peace. 
up somewhere in design heaven. I'm Emily Berman. We're curious. What do you think the new Nutrition Facts label should or should not include? Send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro or reach us by email. Our address is metro at WAMU.org. It's your sport and diet. Keep you healthy tonight. You're not alone in this fight. We're talking about nutrition. Yeah, carbohydrates, proteins, critical nutrients, and accessory foods. Our last story today is about a guy who knows a thing or two about makeovers. His name is John Campbell, and he's been a barber in the Benning Road area of southeast Washington for more than 40 years. Jocelyn Frank recently spent a Saturday afternoon with Campbell at his shop. Welcome to John Campbell's Barbershop. Around here, Campbell runs the show. Uh, how you doing, Miss Dee Dee? Yes, sir. Well, come on. Come on, I got you. Campbell's in his 60s with dark, short-cropped hair and a thick, horseshoe-shaped goatee. He wears round glasses and a white lab coat whenever he has scissors or electric clippers in his hands, which is nearly all the time. At Campbell's Barbershop, it isn't just about the haircuts, shape-ups, or close shaves. This is a base of operations from which John Campbell strives to help the whole community with a makeover. We interconnect with each other. That's what the barbershop is. It's a a place of knowledge and information where we all grow together. We all help each other. You need some clothes, he'll help you out with some clothes. You need some shoes, he'll help you out with some shoes. He can point you right in the right direction. Mario Murphy grew up in the neighborhood. As a young man, he wasn't sure which path to follow in life. Campbell spent some time with him. And now Mario, a boxer, spends his nights in the ring and cuts hair during the days at Campbell's shop. I went for the barber shop, I'd be outside somewhere doing something I was supposed to do. From John Campbell's earliest days as a little boy growing up in the Arthur Caper neighborhood of Southeast DC, he was excited about barbershops. About the time he turned seven, his dad gave him a pair of clippers of his own. I started cutting on my sister's doll baby's hair. She was hurt. I told her, don't worry about it, it's gonna grow back. Which it never did. Campbell's mischievous plans grew when, as a kid, he took a job sweeping the floors of a local barbershop. They had a lot of activity going on. They sold liquor, they wrote numbers, they gambled in the back. There was a lot of money up there then. I said, gee, if I can go ahead and get me a barbershop, do the things that they're doing, I would soon be rich. With that as enticement, Campbell set out first to finish school. In the summers, he worked a variety of jobs, starting literally from the ground up. He was a grave digger on Capitol Hill. At Congressional Seminary, my second job was working with Marriott. I became a pot washer then, I became a dishwasher. He was a fish fryer. He also dabbled in psychology and ministry. Then over high shop, I became a short order cook. Whatever the job, he found ways to make friends and help people out. What goes around comes around, and I found out that actually a true statement. The way you treat people, treat them good, good things are going to come to you because you're going to have that network of people. Campbell finished high school, went on to professional school, and prepared for his barber licensing test. For extra practice and to diversify his clientele, he gave free haircuts to the homeless and to other people who struggled to afford a trim. What started off as a chance for John Campbell to practice cutting hair ended up giving him practice in serving those less fortunate. People come back 
and thanked me for what I did for them to help them. People came back and told me how important I was in their life, and it made me feel great that I was actually doing something. I was actually serving and helping mankind. It was a great feeling. By the time he earned his barbering license, Campbell was less interested in the quick money that barbershops first represented to him. And his commitment to service expanded beyond the walls of his business. He became known for organizing enormous community parties, aimed at getting kids and families to meet up in safe and positive ways. The first event was Campbell's Fun Festival. We had live go-go bands. The crowd got so big, so we had to change the beat. So then I decided to uh, have the fish fry with the gospel show. And it was different. They enjoyed it. Out there praising God. It was nice. In 2012, he hoped to try out a whole new platform for community leadership. He made a run for D.C. City Council. (laughs) An unsuccessful run. The guys at the shop tease him about his results. Last November, he earned only 3.25% of the vote in Ward 7. But Campbell doesn't show any signs of discouragement. If he earned that many votes last time around, he thinks he can gather more if he tries again. And if he does run, he might even try campaigning more widely, like, well, outside the doors of the barbershop. For now, John Campbell seems content helping to make over the city one haircut and shape up at a time. I'm Jocelyn Frank. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, and Lauren Landau, along with reporter Jocelyn Frank. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Rachel Schuster and Robbie Feinberg. Lauren Landau, Rachel Schuster, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll tip our hats to Valentine's Day with a show about chemistry. We'll spend time with the matchmakers behind Date Lab, the Washington Post's weekly experiment in blind dating. We'll meet local scientists using chemistry to keep U.S. soldiers safe from explosives. And we'll consider the crafty chemistry of cocktails with D.C.'s very own Mixtress. Um, I love using lavender in cocktails. Lavender is an underlying aphrodisiac. It not only makes you feel sleepy if you know people like bedtime, but lavender also gives you a feeling of uh, euphoria, love. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.